Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. Today, I am joined by a very special guest, Wall Street legend and renowned investor, Leon Cooperman. A little background info about Mr. Cooperman. He spent his first 25 years at Goldman Sachs in the Investment Research Department as partner in charge, co-chairman of the Investment Policy Committee and chairman of the Stock Selection Committee. In 1989, he became chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs Asset Management. It was chief investment officer of the equity product line, including managing the Goldman Sachs Capital Growth Fund. At the end of 1991, Mr. Cooper, Cooperman left Goldman and started his own hedge fund called Omega Advisors. He later retired in 2016 and turned his hedge fund into a family office. Today, Mr. Cooperman and I will be talking about investing in the stock market and the current phenomenons like the GameStop short squeeze and the rise of SPACs. I'm pleased to have him on the show, so without further ado... Thank you for joining the podcast and welcome, Mr. Cooperman. Uh, my pleasure, Logan. So uh, before we jump into today's topics, I would love to hear your story on how you got into finance slash investing and your experiences at Goldman Sachs. And how did that eventually lead to the founding of Omega Advisors? All right, well, uh, I had a kind of a convoluted way into finance. Uh, back in the 60s, when I was going to college, if you completed your major and your minor in three years, you were allowed to count your first year of medical or dental school towards your fourth year of college and get a separate degree. So in the summer of 1963, I worked very hard, took physical chemistry at the University of Pennsylvania. That was my major chemistry. So I finished off my major. I enrolled in the University of Pennsylvania Dental School. And after eight days, I was wondering if I was going down the path that I was fully committed to. So I would make a point, you know, people ask me a question, what do I attribute my success to? I tell them it's hard work, luck, and intuition. So, um, you know, it was a very, very difficult decision because, you know, I paid room and board at dental school for a year. I paid the tuition for a year. Uh, I had to go to the dean of the dental school to get permission to leave the school, to go back to undergraduate school and get permission from the undergraduate dean of admissions to matriculate back into Hunter, where I went to undergraduate school. My dad, may rest in peace, was pissed as hell at me, but I lost all the tuition money. He was walking around saying, my son, the dentist, but it turned out to be a great decision. So I had all electives available to me. I went back to undergraduate school. At that time, we took five courses a semester. I had two semesters left to finish up my college education. And I took 10 courses in one year, all in economics. I got 10 A's. I never looked back. I found what interested me. And um, so uh, I went from there to Xerox, where I worked as a quality control engineer. They kind of misrepresented the job to me. About two weeks after I started, they explained to me that they had made a decision, which they didn't tell me about in advance, to go to a 24-hour work week. Because they were going to uh, quality control. I, went, I was in a quality control lab. And they were going to go in line with production. So the production worked 24-7. And I was responsible for taking samples of the carbon black uh, off the machine. You know, carbon black was the letters that are being fused to the paper. And uh, uh, the problem with it is one week I was expected to work eight in the morning to four in the afternoon. The next week, four in the afternoon to midnight. And the third week, midnight to eight in the morning. So anyway, I went back um, uh, and I then I, I hired into Xerox. I was explaining that every week I had a different eight-hour shift. 
I didn't mind that so much, except I was enrolled in the University of Rochester Graduate School of Business. In the weeks that I was on to, uh, the four in the afternoon to midnight shift, conflicted with school, so I had to work 16 hours and shift off with another guy or gal so I could go to school. And I concluded there wasn't enough money in the world. I went back to school full time, went to Columbia. Never really changed the path of my life because that Columbia opened the door to uh, Wall Street for me. Uh, I never would have gotten into Wall Street from Hunter College, City University of New York. But when I got that MBA, that kind of uh, appreciated my uh, value. And I went to work at Goldman. And I guess the second part of your question is, uh, why did I leave Goldman to start Omega? And that was a simple one. Uh, it showed you how little influence I had at the firm. And I say that with a big smile because I was a fairly senior partner. But for a decade, I was telling the firm they were making a big mistake by not going into asset management. And for a decade, they were telling me, Lee, you don't get it. We're the belief that money managers should do money management and, and brokers should do brokerage. And we don't want to compete with our main customer, which is the money manager. I said, wake up and smell the roses. Everybody's going into the business. Merrill Lynch Asset Management, Kidder Peabody, which was called Webster Asset Management, CSFB, and your client doesn't mind you competing with them as long as you're playing at a level playing, playing field. And what changed the firm's view was they, one day, Bob Solomon Jr. was announced to be leaving the research department at Solomon to start Solomon Brothers Asset Management. And Solomon was Goldman's arch trading rival back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And the senior partners of Goldman came to me and said, you know, we made a mistake. You were right. We were wrong. Would you leave research and do for us in money management what you did for us in research? What they meant by that was when I took over Goldman Research, Goldman Research was unranked. When I left research, it was number one in II, number one in financial world, three surveys that kind of took your temperature rectally and orally as to your ability. And also, I carried war on two shoulders. I was voted number one in institutional best all-American team for nine straight years in portfolio strategy. But I was ready for a new challenge. And basically, um, I started Goldman Sachs Asset Management. But after a year of doing it, I saw that Goldman's interest and my interest didn't converge. Goldman's a great firm, had a terrific 25 years there. They understood that assets under management times fee equal revenues. And they wanted to capture every dollar uh, there is to capture in asset management that would give them more fees. I was more focused on picking stocks that would go up and making money for the investor. So after about a year of being on the road and raising money and selling clients constantly, I went to the firm and I said, I want to start a hedge fund where I could be the lead investor. And uh, they were unwilling to do it because they were very concerned that hedge funds would short stocks and an investment banking client would find out and the client would be very upset. So I elected to retire. I retired in a very classy way. I was a consultant to Goldman for a year. I started Omega. I did Omega for about 25, 26 years, and I, I love that. And it just got to the point, you know, I'm 78 years of age, uh, and I was ready to kind of uh, stop running after the S&P and do something different. And so now what I tell everybody, everybody's seen the movie Godfather 2 100 times. I never get tired of it. But there's a scene in Godfather 2 at the airport where Hyman Roth is shot. And right before he's shot, he tells the reporter, I'm a retired executive living on a pension. And I tell people that I'm a retired money manager living on investment income. The bad news is I have no active income, meaning I have no income of wages or salaries. The good news is because all my income is passive interest and dividends, I have no client money, I have no pressure. So uh, I like the idea of you know managing my own money. Uh, you mentioned one of your questions about philanthropy. I'm, I intend to give away all my money to charity. 
so I'm working for charity and uh, I like to make money, but you want to give away more money and I don't want to lose money, but I'm very engaged. I'm engaged for myself. Great. Now, uh, moving on to our conversation, I'd like to get your views about investing and today's markets. So my first question is, in the last few months, COVID cases have surged again in the U.S. And while the economy is slowly recovering, the stock market is at record highs. Could, can you explain this disconnect? Yeah, I can. Uh, I have a granddaughter who is extremely intelligent, just graduated a year ago, Stanford, with honors. And she's very, very liberal. And she said to me, similar way, and she's very liberal. She said, Pop, they call me Pop. You know, Pop, why is the market going new highs when so many people are suffering? And I said, party on, Garth. And she immediately understood Wayne's world. And I said that we're in an environment now where the fiscal monetary authorities have pulled out all stops with an eye and just getting unemployment down. And they don't care about the long-term consequences of what they're doing. Now, to put it in perspective, in January of last year, before the COVID virus hit, the number of unemployed in the country, I believe, was 5.7 million. When the virus hit, the unemployment uh, peaked at, unemployed peaked at 23.1 million. It's now down to about 10.5 million. And monetary and fiscal policy are hell-bent on getting the unemployed back down to the 5-odd million of pre-COVID. And so we're in an environment where they're pulling in all the stops. So guys like you, I, I, I get myself in trouble. I say they're getting checks from the government, which are more than they would make by working. They have no commissions okay, because of Robin Hood and all the, all the platforms are going to zero commissions. They have zero interest rates and they're trading. So if it's zero cost of money and zero commissions and you're getting government money, you know, and you can't go to sporting events because they're all closed, why not trade the market? So I understand. And the market, by the way, is very complex. It's not one market. There's the FANG market, which is very expensive, but nothing is really expensive if you discount it against a 1% interest rate. Okay? The Robinhood market is crazy. These kids don't know what they're doing. GameStop goes from two to 500. You know, it, it probably maybe was overvalued at two. Who the hell knows? I, I don't own it. I'm not involved, but I know it wasn't worth 500. had a market cap of like 50 billion which was more than uh, Best Buy, and they were losing money. Yeah, around the, there. The whole business model has changed. But uh, and then you got the rest of the market where you could find plenty of value. But if you ask me as a generalization, I'd say the market is overvalued because we've been busy pulling demand forward. You know, we've, uh, uh, you know, this nation was founded 245 years ago, and we had no national debt. And uh, if you go back a year ago, the national debt went to 21 trillion. And that's going up at the rate of three or four trillion dollars a year, which is a growth rate far in excess of the growth rate of the economy. And somebody's going to pay for this party when the party is over. And we haven't seen the dark side of Mr. Biden, President Biden. I voted for him because I thought we needed a change in uh, leadership in government. But, you know, he's going to raise taxes on the wealthy. He's going to raise the capital gains tax. He raise corporate taxes. And when the market starts to see that, they'll see that we're, uh, uh, earnings are in excess of where they are going to be on a stabilized basis. So I, I think that between uh, fiscal policy and monetary policy, you know, I'll give you another example of how crazy monetary policy is. If you spoke to 100 economists, and Logan, my guess is you probably will. You're such an industrious young man. They would say, in their opinion, the potential of the economy to grow in real terms is about 2%. And real growth is a function of two things, productivity growth 
and labor force growth. That determines real growth. Productivity growth, most economists would say one and a half percent. Labor force growth, about a half one percent. So real growth potential for the economy is two percent. The economy this year is going to grow at six percent. It's growing three times potential, yet we're keeping interest rates at near zero. And so that doesn't make any sense. So I think we're over-earning, we're pulling demand forward, um, and this will change. When it changes, who knows? But when it changes, the market's going to go down a lot, not a little, a lot. It's going to go down very quickly because the whole structure of the market has changed. When I joined Wall Street over 50 years ago, uh, I would point to three things. Uh, Goldman Sachs traded stocks for 25 to 50 cents a share, and the Volcker rule didn't exist. Now commissions are zero because there's no economic incentive for the brokers to stabilize, whether it's Goldman, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, they can't afford to stabilize, and they're not allowed because of the Volcker rule in terms of their risk profile. Secondly, 80% of the volume used to be done on the New York Stock Exchange. 80% of the volume now is done off the board on regional exchanges, so basically dark pools, so there's no specialist system to stabilize the market. And finally, I don't know why, but in 1937, the SEC enacted with the so-called uptick rule to help stabilize markets. It worked very effectively for 70 years. In 2007, for unexplained reasons, the SEC eliminated the uptick rule, which gave rise to all these quantitative traders, which know nothing about value. They know everything about price. And they buy up markets, they sell down markets. So when the market has a fundamental reason to go down, to go down in a hurry. Right now, there's no big fundamental reason to go down. So the market's in a trading range. The game is not over, but I would be very weary because I think the market is overvalued. The greatest comment I could give you, I wish I coined, I didn't, was a comment made by John, Sir John Templeton. He said, bull markets are born in pessimism. They grow in skepticism. They mature in optimism, and they die in euphoria. And I think there are increasing signs of euphoria. The SPAC thing is just unbelievable what's going on. In 2013, the amount of money raised in SPACs was a billion. 2014, 2 billion. 2015, 4 billion. 2016, 3 billion. 2017, 11 billion. 2018, 9 billion. 2019, 13 billion. 2020, 83 billion. And already in two months this year, the number is in excess of 50 billion. Every schmuck and his mother is starting a SPAC, and that's a sign of an excess. And you look at Tesla and you look at some other things. You know, so there are plenty of signs now of euphoria coming into the market, not for the whole market, but for increasing portions of the market. So I would say I have a view that the market's not ready to go down any big way, but, but we're overvalued and uh, we're taking away demand from the future. Now, I wanted to clarify a few things. Uh, you said that the market is overvalued, and I was kind of curious because I read in the Market Watch, Business Insider, Bloomberg, and they said in the last week, uh, treasury rates as well as other corporate bonds have surged. Of course, they are still low compared to uh, 2019 pre-COVID levels. And I was wondering, how does, how does that affect asset prices? The Fed policies inflated every asset. But you've got to ask yourself, is a 1.3% 1.2% 10-year government bond rate sustainable. But, you know, if, if, if the buyer of bonds has got a 40% marginal tax rate, he keeps 60% of the 1.3%. That's 60% of 1.3 is about 7.1% after tax. And basically, uh, uh, the inflation rate, they're trying to get to over 2%. So you have a negative return. So people don't want to buy fixed income, and they're all being forced out of the risk curve. 
So 10 years ago, if you were a buyer of T-bills, you could say, well, I can't get buy in zero. I'm not going to buy T-bills. I'm going to buy T-bonds and take duration inflation risk. The T-bond buys it. I can't survive at 1.3%. I'm going to buy industrial credits. The industrial credit buyer says, I can't get buy in 2 or 3%. I'm going to buy high yield. A high yield buyer says, I can't get buy in 4%. I'm going to buy CLOs with a structured credit. They're more opaque. They have a higher yield. The CLO buyer says, I'll tell you what, equities are hot as can be. I'm going to put 25% of my fixed income fund in equities. And the equity buyer says, I'm going to buy some Bitcoin. So everybody's moving out in the risk curve, and one of those days it's going to change. And my prediction is uh, sometime late this year, early next year, we'll be coming back on the risk curve, coming back in. But that's an opinion. You know, opinions are like uh, uh, noses. Everybody's got one. Great. Now, um, I want to go into more depth of your investment strategy. So I was curious, how has your investment strategy changed from pre-COVID to present day? It really hasn't, you know. I'm out of the, the rat race. I don't care about the S&P 500. You know, I'm looking to make absolute returns. I'm managing my own money. I'm trying to do what prudent and makes sense. So uh, nothing has changed. I try to be a long-term investor. Uh, you know, I recommend, you know, Warren Buffett's one of the great ones. But 40 years ago, or about 40 years ago, he did an analysis in his, one of his annual reports, which is a bit of hyperbole the way he did it. <clears throat> he showed an example if every year you bought that year's hot stock, you made 15%, sold it, paid the taxes, and reinvested the next year's hot stock, made 15%, sold it, and reinvested the proceeds, as compared to buying a 15% serial compound, at the end of 40 years, you had thousands and thousands of times more money after tax than you had by being a long-term investor with low turnover than being a trader. But, you know... It's not 15 versus 15. It's probably if you pick that year's hot stock, maybe you make 50%. It's still you come out ahead uh, by being a long-term investor. So I'm an investor, but my strategy has not changed. I only buy what I understand. Maybe you got to modify the multiple. You know, I used to try to stick in the 12 to 15 multiple game with interest rates where they are. You know, the S&P is now 22 times earnings. So, you know, I look for things that are discount the S&P but not necessarily as low as where I used to look. But, you know, my big positions, you know, with Thien, is four and a half times earnings. Citibank is uh, eight times earnings. Cigna, nine times. Comcast, 13 times. Mr. Cooper, where I have a six-bagger this year, is uh, after going up six-fold, is only six times earnings. General Motors, five times. But I do own Amazon. I own Google. I own Facebook. I own Microsoft. None of those are expensive if you want to use a 1% discount rate which I don't want to do. You know, historically, the 10-year U.S. government bond is yielded in line with nominal GDP. So if you say real growth is 2% and inflation is 2%, the 10-year, based upon history, would be at 4%. And the trouble is the government can't afford to pay 4% for their money because of what's happened to the deficit. So we'll have to wait and see. Great. Now, moving on to the next question, I was curious as to what five stocks you believe will have significant returns in the next few months. I tend to traffic off the beaten path. So I don't, you know, while I own Google, I own Facebook, I own Amazon, I own Microsoft, uh, if I was to give you five names, i give you five. Well, I'll give you one you can afford. It's $2.80 a share. I think it's worth twice the current price. 70% of their revenues come from selling copper. And copper, as I mentioned, a 12-year high. It's an interesting situation. They put themselves up for sale about three months ago. The chairman of the board made a serious mistake. 
He's a private equity guy that owns 50 percent of the stock. He was under a lot of pressure from his investors because he had made no distributions in his private equity fund in over a decade. He was being sued. So the placated investors, he distributed half his position into the market right when the company was conducting an auction to sell themselves. So a lot of people got stock. They didn't know what they got. I think it's worth twice what he's trading for. So I'd say SMTS would be one I'd recommend, $2.80 a share. I don't see much risk. Then I like something called Largo Resources, L-G-O-R-F. They're the second largest manufacturer of vanadium in the world. Vanadium is an alloy used to strengthen steel. They recently bought the intellectual capital of a battery company, and they're moving into the battery business. They established a division called Largo Clean Energy. And basically, vanadium in battery applications for utilities is superior to lithium. It's not flammable. Uh, it has a longer shelf life, and it's reclaimable from the battery. It can be reused. Okay. If you look at the market, there are these battery companies sell at ridiculous prices. They all lose money. They have enormous valuations. Largo has a $600 million market cap, and in, in 2018, they earned about $400 million adjusted in EBITDA. So they earn money. They have no debt. They have $50 million in cash. Um, and I think if this battery shit catches on, God knows what the Robin Hood crowd could do to the price. I like Athene, uh, which I think is cheap. I like uh, Cigna. Those two things you would know. And then I like one, which I don't think you could buy, but you've got to be a uh, 144A approved investor. But write it down. It's called Legato. Uh, it's a, uh, they own about 35 to 40 megahertz of spectrum, uh, which uh, is 5G the country needs. I like that a lot. And see if you, if they have, uh, you know, registered bonds. You can buy that. It's 15 half coupon, pick pay, with three year make hold provision, which means you'll get 150 for your bonds over three years. But those are other, I have others I like, but those are th five ways of hurting yourself. Great. Now, um, what are some key metrics you look for in choosing to buy a stock? And when do you decide to sell? Do you have set sell targets? Well, it's an interesting question. The first question is, I'm a big free cash flow guy. I look at return on equity, free cash flow, inside ownership, and the use of that free cash flow. I'm attracted to companies with large inside ownership. And also, I've had a view ever since I got out of business school, which is 1966, January 31st, 67, to be precise. But a great believer that most publicly traded companies have two values so-called auction market value, which is the price what you and I pay for one share versus the strategic or financial market value, the price a strategic or financial investor would pay for the whole company, we'll call that private market value. So I like to buy companies in the public market value, so that discount the private market value where I can identify catalysts for change. So I tend to have a lot of takeovers in my portfolio because companies come to take over what I own. Um, and uh, so that's, that's, that's my main motivation. When I buy something, I buy something in a price objective, okay? And when it appreciates the price objective, I either re-examine the uh, scenario that led us to buy it, or I sell it. And I sell it more likely if I have new ideas that have more attractive ratio of reward to risk than what I own. So, for example, I'm buying a pot stock today, selling an energy stock. An energy stock that I bought at 8, I'm selling it today at 16. We thought it was worth 16 to 18. But I have an idea 
I think, you know, the, cat, the um, uh, cannabis space is very catalyst-rich. So my analyst has convinced me to put some money into a new company that actually went public today. Uh, the uh, founder's son of Wrigley, the chewing gum company, is starting a marijuana company, and he swears to us that he thinks that we're big in the chewing gum business. So we're taking a shot. So we sell, for, you know, because it appreciates our price objective, and we don't see a reason to change the price objective, or we have another idea that is superior to risk-reward to the one that we have, or we sell because we change our mind about the market, becoming more defensive. I think the market's in the process of making a top, so I'm basically looking to reduce my exposure. Great. Now, I think this is a very important concept, just in overall investing. So I always hear that it's crucial to be diversified in your investment portfolio. Uh, why is diversification important since, you know, uh, most massive wealth creation was created from like a single stock such as Amazon or Tesla? You know, uh, I'm sympathetic to your view. I made a shitload of money betting on the smartest guy I ever met in the business called Dr. Henry Singleton, who was the founder of Teledyne. And I visited with him twice a year for 25 years. I, I rode with him uh, for the 25-year holding period. But uh, I would say that unless you have inside information, there's no sure things. And you could be wrong with inside information. I don't have any inside information. And, uh, you know, I think it's very risky to put all your eggs in one basket. Um, you know, uh, on the other hand, you know, Warren Buffett, you're too young to know this, but Warren Buffett said that in your investment lifetime, the number of great ideas you'll get will fit in a cafeteria punch card. Let me explain that. I don't think they're in business anymore. Horn and Hardot used to go into the restaurant. They give you a punch card. You put a cup of coffee, they punch out 10 or 20, 25 cents. You buy a sandwich, they punch out a buck or whatever the sandwich was. And he says the number of great ideas you'll get can fit in a cafeteria punch card. Remember that is a limited number of punches on the card. But uh, even Buffett is uh, diversified. He doesn't have all his money in one stock. And he made a huge killing to his brilliance in Apple. I see he sold some Apple. So, you know, I would say that probably if you have, depending on how much money you have, if you have 15 or 20 names in your portfolio, you're adequately diversified. You don't need much more than that. I have 40 names in my family office, and in all honesty, that's in part due to the fact I try to keep my analysts happy. You know, you find that if they recommend something and you don't buy it, they start to brood like you don't have confidence in me. So I wind up, the less people I have, the less stocks I'll own. You know, and uh, generally in any one year, five stocks are the workhorse that they do all the work. So I, I, I do believe in concentration, but I think in prudent concentration. You mentioned like Bezos and yeah. Bill. Look, Bill Gates has been a huge seller of Microsoft. He has a family office and he's diversified. Um, you know, there's no sure thing. Great. Now, in the last decade, growth stocks have significantly outperformed value stocks. Do you think that will continue? And would you describe yourself as a value investor or a growth investor? I'm a value investor, but it's growth at a reasonable price. I have a 6% position in Google. Google is, um, according to my spreadsheet here, about 30 times earnings. Given their dominance, given their balance sheet, given their growth rate, I don't consider it an overpriced growth stock. So I don't engage in the debate of growth versus value. If somebody owns it, they think it's a value. If they don't own it, you know, they th maybe they think it's a, a growth stock, I guess. 
I, I look at each company on its own merit. And, uh, you know, back in 1972, uh, the dominant investing institutions were U.S. Trust and J.P. Morgan. And their philosophy was only the right stock at any price. In the nifty 50 of 1972, Avon products were 65 times earnings, largely, I don't know, maybe it's a $3 stock now. Uh, Eastman Kodak went bankrupt was 48 times earnings. GE was 26 times earnings. IBM was 37 times earnings. Kmart was 34 times earnings. Polaroid went bankrupt 90 times earnings. Revlon on a doorstep of bankruptcy, 30 times earnings. Sears Roebuck went bankrupt 31 times earnings. Kmart 34 times earnings. Xerox 41 times earnings. So their philosophy, those were all nifty 50s in 1972. Okay. A good chunk of them went bankrupt. And what happened, uh, those that didn't go bankrupt, there were good companies like Disney and McDonald's. We had a recession in 73-4 that led to a material decline in the stock market. It took those companies a decade to recover. My philosophy is only the right stock at, uh, or bond at any price, at the right price, excuse me. The Nifty 50 was only the right stock at any price. My philosophy is any stock or bond at the right price. I'm very value oriented. I'm price sensitive. And, but I believe in diversification. Uh, but I, I don't, you know, I wouldn't mind having 20% of my dough in one name. I got 20% of my family office in legato bonds, but I, I consider the first lien paper a sure thing. But it's too complicated to go through on this call. I'll take too much of your time. Great. Now, um, Going into analyzing stocks, do you prefer technical analysis or fundamental analysis when it comes to analyzing securities? Fundamental, but I look at the chart. I look at the chart. There's a book written by a crazy guy named John Darvis, and he wrote a book called The Techno-Fundamentalist. Uh, I think it's helpful to look at charts to give you some insight because, you know, there's leakage of information, and generally speaking, stocks that are up are going to have good results. Stocks that are down are probably have bad results. Uh, so I, I look at the technical side, but left to my devices, I'm strictly fundamentalist. I look at return on equity, growth rates, profit margins, P-E ratios, dividend yield, free cash flow, all the essential things. If you go back to the original book called Security Analysis by Graham and Dodd, written in 1934, I, don't, I can't tell you the page numbers, but he gave you an exhibit of maybe 20 ratios they recommended you look at for any company you consider investing in over a decade-long period. So, you know, I, I look at the fundamentals. I think technicians are uh, a lazy uh, response to fundamental analysis. Well, uh, I asked that question just because um, my favorite investor, Howard Marks, he uses this thing called the random walk hypothesis. And he, he this is how he justifies technical analysis according to the random hi walk hypothesis, basically saying that past price and past price movements of a stock, they can't predict like the future of what the stock may be later. Like let's say last January it was at forty dollars and then it went to forty five, fifty, sixty, and then it just pretty much varied throughout the month of January. And then the next year it can't be the same thing. So I was wondering, do you agree with that as well? I believe that uh, there's a role for passive investing in large portfolios but that uh, um, running your money through an index fund is looking to the future through a rear view mirror. 
Warren Buffett did not get to be worth 50 or 60 billion by buying an index fund. You know, I didn't get to be worth what I got by buying an index fund. Mario Gabelli didn't get to be worth what he got by buying an index fund. There's a reward for stock selection and hard work, and the market is inefficient. I'll give you a perfect example. I take zero credit for this. My analyst, he loved a stock called Mr. Cooper, and he constantly talked about it. And Wall Street had a uniform price objective of $12 and an earnings estimate of like 3 or $4. And he said, there's no way they're going to earn 3 or $4. They're going to earn materially more than that, and the stock is worth at least 20 they come out and report second quarter earnings. They earned a half a billion dollars, which was 50% of the market cap, Sam Martini. Okay, Sam Martini. They earned 50% of their market cap in one quarter. And the next day, everybody went from a $12 price objective, and the first stop was 20 and the earnings estimate went from 4 bucks to 6 bucks. It's now 9 bucks, and the price objective is 30 We think it's worth 40 So it's the same company. Washington doesn't do the homework. I'll give you one to look at. P-O-U space C-N on Bloomberg. Canadian oil and gas company. It traded for three or four months at two bucks. If you go back, the analyst objective was two dollars. The stock is now eleven and a half, twelve dollars, and everybody's price objective is eleven or twelve dollars. If you manage your money based upon Wall Street input, you'd go bankrupt. You got there's a reward for doing your homework, particularly now. Because so many firms are not doing fundamental research anymore. Here's a reward for doing research. And I lived with a lot of fads. In 1972, we, we talked about the Nifty 50. That was discredited. It took the 73-4 recession to discredit it. It was discredited. Then we had portfolio insurance in 1987. Everybody was loaded the stocks because they basically said, well, we can insure our portfolio and get out before a big decline. And then you had a 22% decline in one day. And that went away. You don't hear about portfolio insurance anymore. And then in 2000, when uh, uh, Cisco was 200 times earnings, everybody wanted to be in technology. And then we had a decade before the NASDAQ recovered to its previous levels. Okay, now it's passive investing. And this too, it won't pass because passive investing does make sense. But, um, you know, uh, there's a season for everything. And, you know, uh, there's no substitute for hard work and knowing your companies. Great. Now, I'd like to discuss the recent GameStop and SPAC phenomenons. Um, for my first question is, could you give a brief overview as to what happened with hedge fund managers, Reddit users, and the GameStop stock surge? I wasn't involved, so I can only tell you, you know, secondhand. Firstly, um, there's an old expression. Those who sell what isn't hisn either buys it back or goes to prison. Short selling is a much more dangerous game than long uh, purchases, because if you make a mistake in the long, as it goes down, it's becomes a small and small percentage of your portfolio. If you make a mistake in the short, as it goes up, it becomes a bigger and bigger part of your portfolio. So it's a headache. Secondly, uh, the brokers probably weren't playing the game properly. For you to short something, you have to borrow the stock. Okay, If you secure the borrow, then you don't have to have a net short position. So I'm sure a lot of people were short something they didn't have, okay? And that's the fault of the brokerage community for letting people to go short something that they did not secure a borrow on. Now, in terms of ganging up on the shorts, I don't have any great insight into that, but my guess is Gabe Plotkin is a hell of a lot smarter than the guys that were short the stock, and the people that were short get went long at three, four, and 500 are going to lose their ass, as they already have. 
okay? This is a business who's changing. Their business model probably doesn't work. I'm not speaking as an expert. I'm speaking as common sense. But a $50 billion market cap for a company losing money and declining revenues makes absolutely no sense. It's a business that's evaporating. And uh, the, S- the SEC has ways of dealing with this thing, and they better get on the stick before some politician who knows nothing gets in and legislates changes that make no sense. You know, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, AOC, you know, they don't have a goddamn clue about what's going on in the stock market. And if the SEC doesn't grab hold of this thing and start legislating, and my recommendation is the SEC should find a way of outlawing Bitcoin now before it becomes such a big problem that it overwhelms the system. But that's just my personal philosophy. Great. Now, um, I, I want to. Could you clarify some things? So, a long-term position. Let's say you put a hundred dollars into Amazon, or let's just say a random stock, right? So you could lose up to a hundred dollars because that's how much you put in. And then, in a short position, you can lose one hundred percent, right? If yeah. you go to a game stock at two, and it goes to five hundred, and you're still short. That's not a hundred percent. Two to five hundred is four ninety-eight points appreciation on two. I can't even calculate. That's like fifty thousand percent, whatever. Some big number. You can figure that out. You follow? Yeah. Great. Now, I was curious. What is your view regarding the current rise in SPACs as an alternative to an IPO? And can you explain how a SPAC works for our listeners? Yeah. Well, Wall Street, when it gets an idea, is just famous for uh, excess, and they make a lot more money in a SPAC. I'm going to advise to a SPAC announced a deal this morning. Uh, they raised $295 million in a SPAC. They sold a pipe of $220 million. So the total equity check was $595 million. The fees are $60 million. That's 10% of what they raised. Typical underwriting of a public company gets 4 or 5% spread for a large deal. You know, So Wall Street likes it because they're making a lot more money. The companies like it because they don't have to go on a roadshow. They don't have to have the uncertainty of pricing. But for that, they're giving as much as 20% to the action to the sponsor. It's excessive compensation. And every every schmuck in the world is now sponsoring a SPAC. You have to be very, very careful. I own a few SPACs. I've done well in a couple. Uh, but, but I only go into ones where I know the people, I know the business. Could you explain a SPAC as well? Well, you know, you put in 10 bucks, you get a, a, a fraction of a warrant. If you don't like the deal, you put the stock back to the company and they got to give you back your money. And the money goes into a trust. So I understand the uh, buyers of the SPAC feel they have no risk and they have a free look. They look at the deal and they decide if they like the deal and they stay with the SPAC. If they don't like the deal, they redeem out and get their money back. So that's the popularity. Before that, uh, they don't have to do the roadshow. Uh, and like I said, they, they know what the price is because the, the SPAC guy who buys their business, buys at a set price. But he wants to get a deal done because most of these SPACs give them a couple of years to get a deal done. So they're all in a rush to get a deal done to get to the next SPAC. So they're probably less discriminant in the price they pay. So uh, I don't know. When I see something that was a, mil- a billion-dollar business a year and now it's $80 billion and $50 billion and a SPAC is filed every day, I know there's something wrong. Yeah. Something sounds too good to be true. Just use your noggin. It's not true. Got it. Now, 
going back to philanthropy, uh, I saw that you signed the giving pledge. Can you share what the giving pledge is and why did you decide to get rid of all your wealth? I'll tell you what I told Warren Buffett when I had dinner with him nine years ago on the giving pledge. I told him if you're talking to wealthy people, asking for half is not asking for half enough. You should ask for more. And it's, it's a valid concept, but it's not original. Andrew Carnegie said, he who dies rich dies disgraced. In 1930s, so Winston Churchill said, you make a living by what you get, you make a life by what you give. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country could do for you, ask what you could do for your country. And I told Warren, I'm Jewish, and I measure, they say in the Talmud, you measure me not what he has, but what he gives. Okay? And uh, there are other expressions. And uh, the, the way I could put it in plain, simple terms is if you think about it, there's only four things one could do with money. The first thing you could do with money is your pleasure yourself. You buy art, you buy homes, you buy airplanes, you buy, you just buy accumulate material possessions. I happen to be the type of person that believes material possessions brings some aggravation. Just when I was on this call, I got a call from my house there in New Jersey. I have a water leak somewhere. I got to worry about my water leak. I got to worry about my snow removal. I got to worry about my roofer. So I don't like having multiple homes. I like to sell my house in New Jersey. I, I live in Florida, six and a half months, own an apartment. Okay, I don't collect art. I don't collect baseball teams. So when I was working, I was making a lot of money. I'm not working now, so I don't make a lot of money. So I, I, I couldn't pleasure myself because I, I was not an accumulator of things. The second thing you do with money is you give it to your children. But if you have a lot of money, giving all your money to your kids is a mistake because you deprive them of the ability to self-achieve. You know, I, I'm self-achieved. I'm the first generation of my family to go to college, first generation born in America. My father came to America from Poland at the age of 13 as a plumber's apprentice, died carrying up a sink, a four-story tenement from a heart attack. You know, so I, I don't want to give all my money to my kids. That's a mistake. The third thing you do with money is you give it to the government, but only a schmuck gives the government money you don't have to give. You pay your taxes as a good tax-paying citizen, but you don't give them more than you have to give. And the fourth thing you do with money is you recycle back in society. That's it. The four things you can do with money. And I get the most, most pleasure having giving my money back. And then the, there's an expression, shrouds don't have pockets. I don't want to die rich. I want to have my money do good things. So I've given $50 million to create Koopman College Scholars. I pay for 1,000 kids, largely of color in Newark, New Jersey, to go to college where they couldn't afford to go. You're really changing the trajectory of their life. I've given a lot of money to Columbia University. I got my degree, I got a lot of money to Hunter College. So I get great enjoyment of that charitable giving. So what you should basically do is you're on the right path. I can tell you're a smart kid. I can tell from your questions, you're, well, you're mature well beyond your 15 years, 16 years, wherever you are. You know, work hard, be successful, then share your success with others less fortunate than yourself. Hopefully one day I can do that, Mr. Cooperman, but thank you for sharing that story. And before we end today's episode, as a concluding question for our listeners, what advice would you give to young students who have an interest in a career in investing or finance? Well, Warren Buffett says the language of business is accounting. Take relevant coursework. I think I gave you an exhibit, but I said this is what I look for in an outstanding analyst or portfolio manager, the desire and commitment to the best. I preach full Commitment. And the only way to be successful in life is to do what you love and love what you do. You cannot work as hard as I work and not enjoy my work. I never look at it as work. I enjoy what I do. A strong work ethic. I work 70 plus hours a week, even now at age 78, 
and even though I'm giving away my money. Uh, be able to do a thorough and penetrating analysis, in-depth research with a strong analytical foundation. If numbers don't talk to you, you know, don't become an analyst. You know, you got to look at numbers and enjoy looking at numbers like a green eye shade guy. Have an intensity to be on top of your positions and be ahead of the crowd. A good nose for making money. You know, know when you're on the right track, make the position meaningful for the organization. And if the things are going you know, on the wrong track, figure it out before you get crucified. It's very hard to make up 40, 50% losses. So, you know, figure out when you're on the wrong track as early as possible. You know, um, and, uh, you know, uh, the language of business accounting, have good accounting skills, uh, operations research, you know, know how to use uh, spreadsheets, computers, etc. And also uh, the ability to write, very important, so you can express yourself in writing to get your ideas to people. But share exhibit six with your viewership. That's in my hand that I sent you. As I said at the very beginning, I attribute my success to hard work, a lot of luck, and intuition. You know, it took a lot of guts back in 1966 to quit dental school, give up tuition, and give up, uh, you know, uh, room and board fees after eight days because I wasn't sure I was on the right track. A lot of people would probably finish off dentistry and then not go into dentistry, which was a mistake. The other uh, example of intuition, when I was interviewing for a job, I was a very attractive package like you'll be. I was Beta Gamma Sigma, Wall Street Journal Student Achievement Awards, trade A's. At Columbia, I had a six-month-old kid who was at business school. I was a very attractive package. I had 16 job offers, very different in today's world. Okay, And I was broke. I had no money. And Goldman made me an offer for 12500 and I had four superior financial offers to theirs. And it was one of the few times in my life that I did not ex- act on a deadline. It was I'm very anal. You told me to be on the phone 415. I was on the phone at 410. Okay, you told me to wear earphones. I wear earphones, right? I listened to instructions, basically. And I passed the deadline. Goldman gave me an offer. And the guy who made the offer was a terrific guy from Yankton, South Dakota, Bob Danforth. He's deceased. Very fine gentleman. And said, Lee, we're very disappointed we haven't heard from you. And what can we say? He said, Bob, let me be honest with you. I'm dead broke. I have no money. I got a student loan to repay. I got a six-month-old kid. I have a relatively new wife. Uh, I got four job offers with more money, but I liked everybody I met at Goldman Sachs. And at that time, Union Carbide had a book of compound interest uh, tables. And I knew that if I could compound at 15% over five years, at 12.5, it would be 25000 I asked him, do you think I could double my income in five years? And he said, if you work hard and keep your nose clean, I think you could do it. I said, I'm coming. I accept the offer. I made 180000 in my fifth year. I went on to join a firm that was one of the few firms who did not change a name over 150 years. I could have gone to Goodbody, White Weld, Kuhn Loeb, Low Bros, all of them merged out of business. I went to one of the few firms that didn't merge out of existence. And then when I was made a partner in 1976, Goldman had a record year. They earned $40 million. In 1991, the year I retired, they earned $1.8 billion. And I was a part of that whole run from $40 million to $1.8 billion. So I used intuition going to Goldman. I used intuition in not going to dental school. And so part of life is making good judgment calls and doing the right things. And I'm sure you will make good judgment calls. Great. I wish all of your viewers good luck. If they're smart as you, 
Logan, they're all going to be big successes. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm lucky not to compete with you because you're a lot smarter your age than I was at 15. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your time and uh, sharing your story and expertise in investing. I'm sure our listeners have expanded their knowledge in the fascinating area of finance. So thank you again. Okay, and you're welcome to share my hand that I sent you with them. Will do. Thank you.